Hello and welcome to Discuss, part five of the first episode of our Rooted series. This week, Josh Wilton, Andy Withrow, and myself, Jonathan Ellis, continue a discussion on what we've been looking at in our first episode, our core belief that God speaks, and our longing to be Christ-focused, word-centered. We've just started a new series. It's called Rooted, the Roots of Faith in Christ. And we're doing it in these two-week chunks, and there's seven of them. So over 14 weeks, we're going to cover seven different topics. These are, are topics that ground us in reality and ground us in our very souls. They're part of what's core to the Christian faith, and we want to make what is core in the faith, core in our hearts. So as Tina put it, trademark. we want to be heart core. That's trademark Tina. Trademark Tina. Yeah. It's a good one. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. And a lot of these topics could go in any order except for the first one. The first one has priority as numero uno because it sets the stage for everything else that follows. So the Christian faith, uh, the Christians believe in a God who creates the world, who designs, who architects, and who manufactures the goods, and that this God is good, that he cares, that uh, he's just, he's loving, he's merciful. But the only reason Christians would say anything about that, and claim to have any knowledge on the topic, is because God speaks. This is something that is core, and that is our number one thing. I just spoke on it last week. That God loves a good story, and that he uses both images and words. But for himself, he says, no one else gets to make an image of me. Though the heavens declare the glory of God, I'll give you words to describe who I am and what I'm doing. Of course, he acts in Israel's history and the rest. But, he has a favorite word, and that word, as we learned last week, is Joshua or Yeshua, also known as Jesus. Not, I mean, this is purely not God will save is what Yeshua means, what Jesus means. And that that word is also becomes an image. So it's God's self-portrait presented to the world that we can know something about the glory and the goodness of God and some pretty serious surprises along the way in Him. So, we've got... The words, and I claimed, that the Bible claimed, that God speaks to the world and he speaks to individuals. He speaks to all of us and he speaks to each of us. And just as the Christian confession has Jesus as both divine and human, with a foot in two worlds, so do the scriptures. That they are also God's speech and they're also the writings of humans. That's, that's what I claimed. Does that sound like the sermon I preached? I you said something like that, yeah. Now, we've got a couple of very practical things for Neighborhood Table. We want to think through, how does, it, how does the Old Testament in this case, here's just one little thing, how does the Old Testament reveal God? And especially if, as I claimed, 
Jesus at the center of the story. Where, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? How am I even supposed to read the Old Testament? Is it even relevant? How does it frame my worldview? What I believe is true. And for that, we've got our resident Old Testament wannabe, I mean, total scholar, total scholar, 100% scholar. And you're going to, to touch on this a bit. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I do love the Old Testament. I, I focused on it in school. I thought if I'm going to spend a lot of money, time, and resources, I better focus on the thing that is less comfortable, less familiar, and I understand it less. And I understand the Old Testament far less than the New Testament. It was very helpful. But I do want to just touch on a couple of things. One, you've got the, you've got the familiar Old Testament passages that connect to Jesus. They seem more obvious than others, like uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's Isaiah 53. And you're reading through the Gospels, you're reading through Jesus getting beaten and taken to the cross for execution. You're like, yes, this connects. I see how this is clearly about Jesus. No ambiguity there. And that one's called the fifth, some people call it the fifth gospel for that very reason. Yeah. It's so on the nose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like Isaiah nailed it. Like New Testament writers are quoting him, right? Verbatim. Like this, yes, here it is. See? Uh, so, so Isaiah had this moment and in, in it seems like this really amazing connection. But you read other parts. I mean, the Old Testament's big and there's other parts where it doesn't feel like it connects so well. And... And one example is the psalm we just read, where it's like some of these things feel like they connect to Jesus. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He delights in the law of the Lord. Obviously, he knows it. He's sparring with the lawyers of the day who had it memorized. And then this blessing, this, this un, unmitigated blessing in verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. And you're reading through the gospel accounts, like, well, it looks like he fails. It looks like... Um, a lot of what he's doing isn't prosper. A lot of people aren't following him. A lot of people are rejecting him. A lot of people hate him, even to the point to where they, they crucify him and they beat him. But thinking about Jesus pointing to the Old Testament, the scriptures of his day, and saying, these point to me. These are about me. And we can back up and read beyond the passion, the, the um, trial and execution of Jesus to his resurrection and his appearance to the disciples, God does vindicate him. God does ultimately prosper him in a way that is unprecedented. Psalm 1 applies to Jesus in this sense better than it applies to anyone else in history. And it teaches us how to read this kind of, kind of teaches us a bit how to read the Old Testament because things that don't always fit need to step back and say, we're not seeing the whole picture. If we stopped, if the Gospels ended at the cross, we wouldn't see the whole picture. Psalm 1 would, would have to be rejected. Obviously not true. This is God's right-hand man. But because of the resurrection and the story continues from there, we see that Jesus does prosper. The righteous man in this case wins, and the wicked are taken to account, or, or that's the promises that they will be. And even if in the in-between times, it doesn't always look that way. So that was just one quick example. of You've got kind of your obvious passages that you say, yes, this is Jesus. But some of them you have to kind of like step back and say, okay, how does this work? And how does this fit? And sometimes we need help with that in the wider community and, and listening to each other and going through the scriptures together. 
Yeah, yeah. Good one. Good one. Yeah, I, mean, I relate to what you say about being intimidated by the idea of connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when I started studying theology, the first book I bought was a commentary on how the Old Testament and New Testament connect. It's still one of the thickest books on my bookshelf. I haven't read it, but I have read. It's probably really good. Um, it looks good. Good reviews yeah, on Amazon. It's, it's got a nice looking cover. Yeah. yeah. I have read uh, the, the children's Bible, and I'm reading that with my kids, and, and they have one that we just got called the Jesus Storybook Bible, which does every well-known Bible story for kids that it goes through, it sort of ends with connecting it to Jesus. So perfect example of that is the story of Abraham. God asks the man he chose to be the leader of his people to take his son whom he promised, and it, Abraham was excited to have the son, and then God asked him to take him up to a mountain and sacrifice him, which, you know, it's one of those Old Testament stories that's kind of harsh, and, and we don't really understand what, it, what it's all about, what God's doing there. It seems a bit, you know, it's not like our culture today. But then this, the story does connect to Jesus quite simply in the end, in that God himself sacrificed his own son, for us, and so he, in the end, he didn't ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but we see that God Himself was willing to do it, and so it can be simpler than we think. I mean, it's still tricky in parts, but but the connection is mm -hmm. is there for sure. Yeah, that's good. I think that's one of the keys to making this a living document: is to let it poke you and provoke you. Like that scene is is a pretty gruesome scene, and it's very confusing why God would speak to anyone and say, sacrifice your son. Now he comes through in the end and he does something else. He provides his own sacrifice, which is part of the thing. But you don't really understand that, how important that, uh, that is until millennia later when Jesus comes. That's a pretty sneaky Easter egg. You know, like, I'm just going to stick no this in here yeah. and let this bear fruit. In a story much, 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 much later. Same I would Punch say comes with the sacrificial system. Mm. You're just going to have a thousand years plus of sacrificing animals because of the sins of humanity. Mm. And the connection is not obvious. It's not obvious to me. Why does their blood need to be shed because of humanity's badness. And then bam, you've got Christ in the end, who sacrifices, using the same language, develops on the image and fulfills the image. It's pretty cool. That ties yeah. into, Andy, we, you had Luke 24 down here. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the resurrection, one of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, and he, it's the road to Emmaus. A couple of disciples are upset about what happened um, they're they're disoriented, they're distraught, and they don't recognize him, and which is odd. But um, that's, he, he asks them what they're talking about, and then he proceeds to tell them, "Well, why are you so slow to believe what the law and the prophets have proclaimed about what must might happen to the must happen to the Christ?" And then he proceeds to I can't remember the language, but he proceeds to tell them, uh, teach them from the Old Testament all the. All about himself basically yeah beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself 
Now, either that's like a huge summary or like they spent days because the Old Testament is really, really long. So I'm guessing it's probably like they spent a few hours taking through the, the contours and some of the moments yeah. of the Old Testament story. They say hey, all of this, if you understand it, points to, to me, to my life and my death and now my resurrection. So, but they're not just going to get it. This is, this, this is an interesting point. So it takes Jesus having to explain it to them. So even having memorized good chunks, probably the entire Torah, the first five books at least, mm -hmm. uh, and then having lived through Jesus, the life and times of Jesus, mm -hmm. they still don't get it. Jesus has to explain it to them. And now you're having to explain it to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I've had to have it explained to myself. How, what do we supposed to do with that? Maybe that's something that's by design. Okay. Yeah. So, so community is important in the New Testament, and um, we are called the the body of Christ in the New Testament, the the, the temple of God's Spirit, right? So, um, there isn't there isn't really the space for private interpretation. You said earlier that God speaks to every, everybody individually, but also all people together. You had a fancier way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> But, but a big part of that is, is learning to hear God's word in community because when I'm sitting next to someone who's different than me, I'm going to hear God's word differently. For example, um, we had a, a professor at Regent who uh, taught a class called Reading the Bible with the Damned, and he would do a, lead a Bible study with inmates at a prison. He says, when you read the gospel with prisoners, things jump out at you that don't that you would never have, would never have like caught your eye or attention no. before. And it's somewhat, I think, a similar thing. When we read in community, we learn to read together. How does a, how does a, a university student hear this text? How does a single mom hear this text? How does an indigenous person hear this text? And so on and so forth. And it gets us to learn kind of the, to hear and feel the fullness of the scriptures in a way that maybe just us in our bedrooms, as good as that discipline is, reading it on your own, we maybe don't hear the whole thing. And so community is helpful to, to teach us to read, how to read scripture and how to listen to God's words to us. Okay. Yeah, and I think um, that it, it is a struggle and that that's okay, that we are meant to struggle with it, that we're not meant to have the answers right away just like you pointed out, Abraham didn't have the answer ever really, that the Easter egg showed up thousands of years later. Um, so it's less about you know, getting everything sorted out and, and more about the journey that we, we take together. Um, John Wesley, who was a, a church leader hundreds of years ago, he, he wrote that the Word of God, the Bible, is known by many names, that, you know, the law, mm -hmm judgment, I wrote them down, there's righteousness, testimonies, the word, as well as the way. Yeah. Um, and it is this journey along the way that we follow together as disciples. We read, read in Psalm 95, uh, I've been doing midday prayer for a long time, and every day we read Psalm 95, which is, your word is a lamp unto my feet, mm -hmm. and a light to my path. And it's this path toward righteousness. We also talked a lot about Psalm 23 over the last few months, how the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. The word is our shepherd. 
that guides us on these paths of righteousness. And that journey may not always be easy. We go through the valley of death and all that, but ultimately towards these green pastures beside still waters. So even though it is a struggle, there is a promise of peace at the end. Yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the struggle is part by design. Jesus himself comes speaking mainly in stories and parables that are not clear even to his disciples, even after he's explained them. And it seems to me there's a parable itself about somebody who finds a pearl in a field and sells everything and goes to get that field. And there's, there's something about the pursuit that seems essential to the Christian faith that God wants to draw out people who will engage even in the darkest bits and in the confusing bits. And say, God, if this is you, then what does this say about you? And if this is who you are, then what does that say about me and how I should respond? These are the big questions. And that, that he does it in, also in a way that there's a shared story, not just for the single mom, the indigenous person, but about, for the 16th century monk, in Ireland, right? Yeah. The third century right. Christian in Antioch. Mm -hmm. And there's, it spans time and space. And it's been in so many different places. And that's a feature, not a bug. That it can be translated. That these stories then become part of a broader learning. And we do this when we prep in sermon. we look, sermons. We look at commentaries. But we might also sit and read this a passage with other people over a coffee and see what comes of it. So I want to just, before we, we transition here, some ways to keep the scriptures alive, okay? Because a lot of people, if you're new or if you've been here doing this a long time, it can seem dead, it can seem hard to understand, um, or like you've, you've already known it, what do we call it, inoculation? Like mm -hmm. you've heard the stories, you grew up with them, if that's some of your cases. But here's how, let it poke and provoke. Here's a way to do it. Say it and pray it instead of read it. Almost no one until the Gutenberg, until the printing press, read it. Most people heard it or spoke it. Mm -hmm. And they said it out loud. And that changes. When you do that, it slows you down a little bit. And you start to hear different things and imagine the scene a little differently sometimes. And that's the second part is imagine scenes. So even if you're in a letter, you're only getting one side of the conversation. Imagine what the other side of the conversation, why is Paul saying this? What had to happen in a community for Paul to say such and such? Oh, last thing, and then if you have any final thoughts, either of you, change your pace. So sometimes it's good just to blow through the whole Bible. Like, I mean, just like, just skim Leviticus. That's okay. Give me permission to skip the genealogies. There are some nuggets in there, but, I mean, they're buried treasure. Like, you actually have to do some work there. If you just blow through the thing, understand the big story first, and deal with some details later. And then other times, it's like, I'm just going to spend a whole year in the Gospel of Mark. Fine-tooth comb, follow every loose thread, and see where it leads me. That keeps it interesting, keeps it fresh. Mm -hmm. you have any other tips? I think it's just important to remember when we read the Bible, um, 
to remember its purpose, that it isn't just, you know, a sort of a self-help manual yeah. to help us feel better on any certain day in, in any certain situation, um, that it is, as you said last week, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, it is the revelation of who God is. Um, the revelation first, you know, through the Old Testament of who God is and then pr primarily through Jesus. And that it is the revelation of the good news that he came to save us. It's the, it's the, the good news of, of salvation, the gospel. Yeah. And so if we live a life that is word-centered, Christ-centered, ultimately we're living a life that is centered on the good news, uh, the gospel, and uh, our hope of salvation. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think one thing I would just say is even just the idea of the, the Lexio Divina, which is a way of kind of using reading with prayer and reflection and meditation. And it's, it's recognizing that we're present to God's presence as we read. What's um, the Lexio? Uh... It's, um, it's, it's divine reading, it means divine reading. So it's, and I don't wanna get into it here because of time, but, but we do practice a lot at the table. Vanessa will, will send you a one pager um, uh, on, on sort of the practice of it. But I think you might be surprised when, you, when it does force you to slow down and prayerfully read yeah. and reflect scripture, reflect on scripture and then share it with somebody like this. I think God might be saying this to me in this season. Um, that, um, that I, I think that is, that is pretty fruitful and effective. Great. Well, why don't we, uh, as to Jonathan's point, this is not just some information about the world or the cosmos. Even though we believe it's true, the goal is to bring us into relationship with God and to transform us into the image of Christ that we may better love those around us. Thank you for listening to Table Radio, an extension of the life of the Table Church, a community in Greater Victoria, BC. Our mission together is to love God, love each other, and to love and bless our neighbors so that we may see Christ revealed in common life. Music for this episode was provided by Richard Charter, a member of our community. And to learn more about our community, please go to tablechurch.ca. Thank you for listening. Take care. And God bless you.